bow our heads. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this incredible privilege of being here this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for giving us this building to worship in, to gather together, to fellowship this way, in this unique way, to dine and break bread, the very bread of life together, Father. What an incredible privilege this is. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be here this evening for a variety of reasons known to you. We just pray that they return to us as soon as possible, uh, as soon as you're done um, doing what you need to do with them, Father, or reminding them or correcting them or encouraging them or whatever it takes, Father. We just pray that they return to us sometime soon. We pray also for those still lost in this world without hope that they receive saving faith before it's too late. Most of all, we are most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this just a beautiful moment in time for we believers to rejoice in. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 45, Proverbs 17, Wisdom. We began, I love this. I was thinking about this before class. Um, I love it when he allows me to teach you how to fish. And not just necessarily present doctrine or present, you know, uh, a message just sort of uh, in teaching mode that way. Um, I like it when he, when he allows me to teach you um, how to fish. In other words, like we began on Sunday, um, we began with a friendly reminder as to how we ought to be reading our Bibles. I love this because we all should be reading our Bibles. And um, there's a technique to it. There's a strategy even to reading your Bible. You can, there's a lot of people out there that read their Bibles looking for a specific something, almost the way a lawyer would be looking for some, you know, precedent or some loophole or something like that. Um, if we read our Bibles honestly, we have to read them with integrity. And I love that he's been teaching us the way he has been. Um, if we're ultimately seeking to always understand the context of a passage, that idea of reading for context has been at the forefront of our studies for years now, right? And so we have to read our Bibles to understand, to seek to understand the context of each passage that we read. Um, and so we have to begin with this up here on the board uh, as one of the fundamental premises of learning how to read your Bible. Narrative versus doctrine. Never make the mistake of taking a narrative part of Holy Scripture and formulating doctrines that simply aren't present. If I tell you a story, in other words, about my own life, you can't make absolutes out of that story. There was a context to the story, right? I said, I said oh my God, I'm going to kill you. Well, if you take that out of context, you might think I'm a murderer, right? That's how important context is. You can't make a doctrine, oh, Ed Collins, he's a murderer. He said it. I want to kill you. He's a murderer. There's a doctor. Mm -hmm. That's precisely what people do with the Bible. They read a story. They say, oh, it suits my purposes. It suits my, you know, uh, predisposition, my pre presumptuousness, um, my presuppositions, my pre-everything. It suits me, so I'm going to make a doctrine out of it. People do that all the time. And it creates havoc. It wreaks havoc in their souls because later on down the line, when they read something that's against that, they don't know what to do. They say, oh, no, what? I have this doctrine in my soul. It's been there for years. Now I actually open up my Bible. I read something. It's completely contradictory to that thing that I held to be true. Now what do I do? Now I'm uncomfortable. Now there's a tension in me. And you know what? That tension shouldn't be there. And it's only there because you made that choice in the first place to turn a story into doctrine. And now you're in bondage to it. 
And then it takes some unraveling like I'm doing this evening. We all go through it because we all show up to the Bible and we want to read passages in Scripture that make us that affirm what we want to be true and we take things out of context and we play lawyer. Don't do it. Don't do that thing. This topic was spawned from our recent review of Luke 24, where Jesus sent his disciples to Jerusalem before he sent them abroad. And of course, that was in the context of the Great Commission. Uh, In the context of that passage, though, in Luke 24, the apostles and some others were already gathered together in Jerusalem. That was the context. And when Jesus, in his resurrected body, had come to them, he instructed them to begin spreading the good news about himself where they were, in Jerusalem. And to not leave Jerusalem, quote, until you are clothed with power from on high, which is a reference to the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he said, don't leave until you get the power of the Spirit upon you to go abroad, to do this other thing. So, hey, while you're here, do this. Okay, that was the context. The point the Spirit made, and it's a really important one, to the point on the board, is that we cannot make a doctrine out of a narrative like this. Okay, We can't say that all evangelism begins in our own backyards. Might it? Sure. Can it? Absolutely. Are you encouraged? I guess so. But it's a bigger picture than that. And so we don't make a doctrine out of a narrative. For example, again, we cannot say that all evangelists start in their own backyards. Might that be appropriate? Sure. Within the context of a specific person's life. Within the context of a specific person's life. In other words, everyone's life has a context. And you have to understand that context through prayer, through observation, through application of biblical doctrine to your own life so that you can decide, so that you can be convicted of what's right when it comes to the Great Commission. Again, that's not clearly stated doctrine. Um, Up here on the board, just to drive the point home, a story in the Bible isn't doctrine. Okay? A story in the Bible isn't doctrine. It's a story in the Bible. And every story has a context. Just like your life has context. These aren't... Other than the fact that they're captured and there are, you know, wonderful, great, you know, uh, faithful people in the Bible, it doesn't mean they're any more or less human than you. I mean, they're just people. They're stories about people, and each person has a, a life context. And so a story in the Bible isn't doctrine. The author of Luke 24 himself, Luke, describes the nature of the gospel account after his uh, own name, again. All you have to do is just go to the beginning of the book. Go to Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, go to Luke 1.1. 1, 1. The very first sentence. Luke 1, verse 1. So we're looking at Luke 24. And I'm not, it's not necessarily Luke 24 that's in view. It's a principle in view, right? It happened to be top of mind for us. The Spirit just wanted to make sure you didn't make anything, you know, doctrines that weren't supposed to be doctrines in your soul. But then it spawned a bigger discussion. Uh, Luke 1.1, 1, 1, look at it says. Same book as Luke 24, obviously. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a what? A narrative. There you go. A narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. In other words, I get it. I was there. I saw the context. I can tell you the stories. To write an orderly account for you. An orderly account of what? As a narrative. Most excellent uh, Theophilus, that you may have certainty among the things you have been taught. Again, I point this out so that you understand that even the writer of the Gospel of Luke called his account a narrative in the first verse of the book. Okay? He says, I'm gonna I'm gonna spell this out. I'm gonna share what I saw with you. 
Okay, it's going to be narrative format even. I'm going to compile the story. All right, the story, and Jesus is in that story. I'm going to compile it for you. Okay? Are there clearly stated doctrines in the Gospel of Luke? Of course. Of course there are. For example, we can glean several doctrines. And I just picked this, by the way. It was maybe one of the first ones I saw. Go to Luke 1.30. Are there doctrines in the Gospel of Luke? Sure. Right? But you have to make sure that you understand the context. You have to understand when the doctrine is actually stated. Look at this. And some of these are minor doctrines, right, in, in, in the sense. Uh, Luke 1.30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So the doctrine there might be that Mary found favor with God. If you want to talk about the doctrine of Mary, well, guess what? Part of it is that she found favor with God. That's clearly stated doctrine in Holy Scripture. Okay. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Doctrine, the Messiah's name is Jesus. Okay, that sounds straightforward. 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of Most High. And the Lord God will, if you want to get into the doctrine of the names of Jesus, there you go. And the, the Lord God will give him to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Doctrine, the Messiah possesses the throne of David. Do you get it? That's clearly stated doctrine. Those things you can hang your hat on. Those are facts. That's what doctrine is. It's facts, not a story. The story itself is a fact that happens, but you understand the difference. These are all examples of clearly stated doctrine, much like the example I gave you on Sunday up here on the board. John 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's about as clear as you can get when it comes to doctrine. That's about as clear as you can get when it comes to doctrine. Okay. So there's a big difference between a narrative in Holy Scripture and clearly stated doctrine. The Spirit gave us another narrative to ponder on Sunday in 1 Corinthians 1, 14 to 17, where Paul stated he wasn't sent to baptize, but rather preach the gospel. He was emphasizing something. Uh, and, and he was doing it in the context of an issue in the church at Corinth, because they were a bunch of idolatrous types, like Americans, always looking to, you know, I'm from so-and-so, and oh, I'm, I'm from this church, and oh, I'm from that church, and I'm from so-and-so pastor, and I'm from that pastor. And, well, I got baptized by him, and it makes me better than you, because he's better than your guy. It's like, my dad's stronger than yours, garbage, right? It's true. It's the way we are. So the, sport, the Spirit pointed out that we cannot make false assumptions about water baptism based on that passage. In fact, the context of that passage, if you care, if you even care, which I think sometimes people don't care, they are again, they go, they're like, I don't want water baptism to be real because I don't want to be water baptized because I don't know, maybe I'm embarrassed. Maybe I don't want to do it in public. Maybe I'm a schmuck. I don't know. But I look for it and I say, see, Paul didn't do it right there. You see it right there? It says right there. Paul didn't do it. No such thing as water baptism. Boom. Don't have to do it. You understand what I'm getting at? That's, that's lawyering. And that's what people do. They read stories in the Bible and say, see, he didn't do it, so I don't have to do it. That's garbage. The context of that passage is much more about uh, idolizing preachers, if you want to know if you're really seeking the truth. He was arguing about why he didn't want to baptize someone because he didn't want to be idolized. He didn't want to be in the mix. He didn't want to be part of that argument that was going on who's better and who got baptized by who. And He didn't want to even be a part of the mess, in other words. He wasn't even talking about water baptism other than a use case for it, you know? Other than that might have been a contributing factor to why he might have been idolized. He wasn't, even, he wasn't establishing doctrine about baptism. It's ridiculous, the things people do. Again, I'm just trying to save you a lot of heartache. I don't want this to happen where you read a, a passage 
a narrative, you make a doctrine out of it, and then years later or sometime later you're going, but these don't fit. Like this thing that I held true and then this thing that I'm reading now, they don't fit. They're not supposed to fit because this was a false uh, presumption. You made a doctrine out of something that should have never been a doctrine. That's the whole point. That's why things don't fit in your soul. So again, up here on the board, what's the point? The side note that the Spirit's making, and I love it. I hope you do too. I love it, love it, love it. Never make a mistake of taking a narrative part of Holy Scripture and formulating doctrines that simply aren't present. We also looked at one more narrative in the Bible, Mark 6, 32 to 44, where 5,000 people were preached to and fed. And we concluded that there's no indication that Jesus or his disciples somehow knew all of these people personally. Remember the, 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 the instigating passage was Luke 24. Go to Jerusalem first, right? Um, go to the people you know first, not necessarily. As a result of our quick survey of Holy Scripture on the topic of evangelism, we concluded we can certainly be encouraged to take advantage of those closest to us for evangelism. Number two, we can likewise be encouraged to evangelize strangers or even large crowds. So to summarize up here on the board, the scope of evangelism, this is what I want you to take away. It's this attitude, this whatever it takes attitude. That's what counts. Whatever it takes. If there's someone in your backyard that needs evangelism, go do it. If there's someone on the other side of the planet, you have access to them over the internet or by plane, I don't know, by car, you drive over there to another state, whatever, and you're moved to do it, go do it. It's whatever it takes, you understand? It's whatever it takes. We ought to take advantage of every possible opportunity given to us to spread the gospel to the four corners of the globe. This includes fostering and leveraging personal relationships, but it doesn't end there. We ought to adopt a whatever-it-takes attitude towards evangelism. Artificial boundaries born of false doctrines will only frustrate the Great Commission. Right? It might, I mean, I don't know, maybe God, and God, you know, God, God's pushing you. Hey, drive to the next state uh, and go evangelize someone. You know, drive to your cousin's house that you haven't seen in a while the next few towns over, okay? Because God knows you can't go out of the state, right? You know, go to the couple of towns over, right? That's what he wants you to do, but you've got this false doctrine, but I haven't evangelized my own backyard. And so you spend your time, you know, kicking tires with a complete antagonistic atheist who's never going to change their mind. You've tried to evangelize them. Everybody on the block has tried to evangelize them. They're not budging. God's already handed them over. And he says, I need you down the street with your cousin. But I, in my head, i got to evangelize people in my backyard first. You see what's going on right now? You're frustrating God's will for you because of some false doctrine from a narrative you read. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's what happens when you have false doctrine in your soul. It frustrates the Great Commission. Furthermore, in the so-called Great Commission, I say so-called because that, the, you know, that word, that phrase, the Great Commission, doesn't actually show up in Holy Scripture. That's Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus instructs us to not only spread the good news, but also teach people. And in the original language, in the Greek, it's present tense active voice. And by now you probably know what that means. That means it's a habitual thing that you do. It's an ongoing effort. It's something you do all the time. Teach, ongoing, active voice, present tense. It's a, it's a, it's a habit. Teach, that's the command. Teach them. Don't just evangelize them and go, see you later, glad you're saved. Teach them. Bring them to the church. Evangelize them. Bring them to the fold. Say, hey, here's a place you can be fed, the Word of God, because you've got to keep going. This, that's not where it ends. Up here on the board, making disciples implies a lifelong commitment, not just one that ends when we are convinced someone is saved. I mean, that's just the starting point. I don't know about you, but the most exciting thing of all is to 
to be a part of or at least know that someone just got saved. Don't you want to bring them with you? Don't you want to say, this is awesome. I have a new brother. I have a new sister. Come with me. Like, let's go. Unless you're playing that weird game that contemporary Christianity does, right? Here's a, hey, here's a coin with John 3.16 on it. Booyah. Oh, did you say that prayer? You're in. And then that's that mindset. Like, it's just about somehow getting into heaven. Did you say it when you were, you know, four years old? And, oh, you're good forever. That's it. That's that game contemporary Christianity plays. A lot of people are going to be very disappointed. I think they're going to hear Jesus say, I never knew you. And the parents are going to be standing there and go, hey, let him in. I never knew your kid. You lied to him all those years, told him he was saved, because it made you feel good about your own lack of activity and trying to evangelize your own kid. You get what I'm getting at? That's a game that we play. We, these, these churches, are, these large, large, super large churches are built on this game. Say this little prayer, here's a coin, mark the date in your Bible. Matter of fact, I'm a special guy. We like to celebrate here. I'm going to sign a Bible from me. You're, you're a new idol. This is when you got saved. Here you go. Go let it collect dust on the shelf somewhere. Doesn't matter. You're saved. You're in. Doesn't matter if you bear any fruit. You're in. I'm just going to lie to you because it makes me feel better. Makes your family feel better. Makes everybody in the false Christianity feel better. Oh, did you see how many people we evangelized? We evangelized 5,000 people today. Did you, though? Fast forward a year. Three are left. Where's the other 4,997? Oh, huh? Right? Where's the rest of them? Honest to goodness, where's the rest of them? Where's the people you so-called evangelize? Why are they not here? Where are they? You claim they're evangelized. You claim they're saved. Where are they? I don't know. I haven't seen them. Do you get what I'm getting at? That's that game. That's that game. Can we just be honest? This is a life long exercise. And as I taught with the gospel reload, a saved person now has a thirst for the truth. Wants this. Wants this. This is gold to them. If they don't have that thirst and they don't have that hunger, guess what? Making disciples implies a lifelong commitment, not just one that ends when we are convinced someone is saved. You are not even called to that commission. That's not your commission. Your commission isn't to, oh, they're saved, I'm out of here. The commission includes present tense, active voice. Teach them. Keep on discipling them. Right, Scott? Keep on discipling them. Great. You think they're saved? Great. Is there evidence of it? Do they want to come? Do they ask you, hey, can I come with you? Can I learn the word of God? I got this new thirst in me. I want to know Jesus. Do they? I don't know. There's a lot of empty seats in here tonight. I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know. What say you? Right? If we're going to have integrity to the Great Commission, it doesn't just stop with a John 3.16 coin and a tip of your cap, and a signed Bible. That's the starting line. Active voice, present tense, teach them. Teach them. And you know what? If they don't want to be taught, what? They're probably not saved. If they don't have a thirst for Christ, stop lying to yourself. Stop pretending if you can't, if they're unteachable, what have I taught you? Arrogance is unteachable. If they don't want the very bread of life, if they're unteachable at that level, guess what? They're still arrogant. They're still in their flesh because they don't want Jesus Christ. How do you not want the one who just saved you? Is God a liar? Did he save someone? Did he, did he literally supernaturally Change them. Change their heart. They're born again. They died with Christ. They've been resurrected, you see, out of the water. That's the whole image of baptism. To, the, to new life. If they, if they have that, 
are they not going to want to be hungry? I don't know about you, but the spiritual life, you know, you need some energy, do you not? You need a lot of energy to go this way. This is a tough road we're on. Amen? Yeah, you need energy. What if they say, I don't need any energy, I don't need any food. I get my food, three squares a day. So you don't need this food? No, I don't need that food. What can you say then? I guess they don't have that motor yet. I guess they haven't been made new yet. They can't even consume this yet. This is spiritually appraised. This is spiritual food, right? But what if they don't have a spiritual engine? What if they haven't been born again? So that they, that they thirst and hunger for this food. You see? you got nothing to teach. But if they do, if they have, they, want to, they have a thirst, and it's your job to teach them, to bring them to church, teach them. You, you follow? It's not rocket science, but we, boy, oh boy, do we play a lot of games. Boy, oh boy, do we play a lot of games. Oof. It's just easier to say, oh, they're saved. I can go back to watching Oprah or reruns of, you know, I don't know. <laughs> do they even do that anymore? <laughs> Lampshade. Remember him? <laughs> right? This is weird. He has eyeballs in his hat. It's like, what? Who drew that guy? Someone, someone needs to start smoking the crack. Right? Like, what are you doing? What are we doing? It's a lifelong commitment. I don't know. I mean, you know, it doesn't end when someone's saved. That's the whole point. So that was our review of making disciples. Um, we did that on Sunday, which, in retrospect, uh, really dovetailed nicely into the previous message, which was a Thanksgiving special. Um, here's some of that connective tissue, starting with this up here on the board. To give thanks, to have that attitude of Thanksgiving, is to be blessed. To give is to be blessed. Giving thanks is just one instance of giving. Is that fair to say? It's still giving. You're just giving thanks. Thanksgiving. And when you give, and it's godly giving, you're blessed. So says Jesus Christ. So if we had to call upon Jesus' own words about giving in general, we understand why we are blessed when we give thanks. Because he literally said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And thank, giving thanks is a form of giving, which means that you'll be blessed. When we give, we're blessed. When God is pleased, because we give, we are blessed. Up here on the board, to God's glory. Whenever God's grace is on full display, he is glorified, which pleases him. Yeah. It's a gracious thing. To give thanks, is it not? That's what grace is. Grace gives. That's the very nature of grace. It gives. When you give thanks, that's a form of grace. That's a show of grace. Whenever God's grace is on full display, he is glorified, which pleases him. When is God's grace on full display? The answer, when we are instruments for his grace. I just described it. When he pours it into our laps and... It overflows abundantly into the laps of others. When we begin to see the way that God's grace, you know, quote, flows, I think of grace as moving. Grace stops being grace if it stops moving. Does that make sense? In other words, if, if God pours something into your cup and you put a cap on it, and it, it, you don't spread the grace, you don't spread the love, it doesn't move, it stops moving with you, you become like a dam. Right? And then, the, you know, you just pause, and it, nothing happens with that grace. That's, that's the perversion of selfishness. That's when arrogance seeps in and ruins a really good thing. So always think of grace as flowing. Like the na very nature of God's grace is that it flows through instruments, through vessels. I mean, think about what a vessel actually is, right? <clears throat> so when we begin to uh, see the way 
that God's grace flows among his children, we can step back and understand his economy. Because that's all an economy is. It's, a, it's a, like a living organism. And, and you know, it's got like that blood supply. And the blood supply is, is grace. It gets pumped through the system. That's what an economy, whether it's financial or, in this case, God's economy, something's moving. There's a currency. Something's moving to keep that organism alive and kicking. And in God's economy, it's grace. So we can visualize how grace flows round and round in his economy. And as it passes through each vessel, as I've taught you in the past, that vessel is blessed. The more grace is put on full display like this, the more we are blessed and God is glorified. That's how it works. That's what he's been teaching us for a long time now. He's telling us to kind of go like this, right? He's like, will you stop? Because you know how it gets, right? Oh, no, no, I got I to gotta, I gotta hoard for myself. I can't, I can't pass the grace on. I got I to gotta keep more for myself. You know, I got to fill my barns, right? I got I to keep more for myself. And when we do that, we, we, we frustrate the flow of grace. I don't want to give my time. I got I to gotta spend all my time at work. I don't want to give my time to other people. I don't want to dedicate my life. I don't want to teach the person who I think I just saved. Because that takes time out of my schedule. And I'm too busy here on my couch. Watching, hey, 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 right? I'm doing lampshade. I got to see lampshade. The guy makes me laugh, right? I don't want to teach the person. It's so much easier just to sit here and not do anything and lie to myself, to that person, to God. It's easier. Well, when we do that, that's the whole point. It's like you hear, you hear like, right? The brakes get put on. Grace is like, stopping right at your doorstep. And God's like, like right now, like, what are you doing? He's like, let's go. I designed my grace to move through you like a vessel, like an instrument of righteousness. Like, you trust me, you'll be blessed. Just let it through. <laughs> so we frustrate it. Reminds me of this week's blog, which is another, yeah, another, and I don't know, I can tell you this for a fact. This was a very rare occasion for me, writing. It was up early in the morning again, probably 5 o'clock, I don't know. Wednesday morning. I'm like, Lord, what do you want me to write? He didn't even give me scripture. Normally he leads me with scripture. He goes, I want you to start writing about a guy that lives alone in the woods and stubs his toe. I kid you not. I just said, really? He's like, yep. So I'm like, okay, here we go. I literally wrote like three paragraphs. There was no scripture yet. I was like, ooh. I'm like, where's this going? I'm like, where's this going? For real, that's what the way it was, right? I had a title, and once I got to like after the third paragraph, I'm like, obviously that title don't work anymore. Change the title. The whole thing changed. Came right back to gratitude. Duh. Unbelievable. Up here on the board, it's called the worn out path. I'll give you a little uh, teaser trailer. Is that what they call it? Right? Teaser trailer? Right? Um, should I? Yeah, you read it. I'm not going to give you a teaser trailer, you lazy people. Right? Take advantage of the grace. You're still breathing. Right? Why should I give you more? I just, it took me another 20 minutes just to record my own voice for you people. Oh, I don't think I want to read it more. I need you to read it to me. Peppy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know you people appreciate it. I'm just being funny. Right? I'm just saying it takes a long time doing a lot of work on this stuff. You've got to read it. You've got to at least do your part, right? It takes me hours to write one. And then poor Monica gets tortured, depending on how bad of a writer I am that day. I just, like, throw it. I, like, lob it over the fence like a grenade. I'm like... I hear, oh, because <laughs> it's like bad. There's all kinds of errors. You follow? It takes a long time. There's a process. So please read them. A lot of grace getting poured into your cup through these blogs, right? 
The whole idea is you read them, and then you're like, aha, that's me. Grace flows out of you to someone else. God says, be grateful. Get off your butt and express this grace to someone else. Just like I just did through the bald guy. God didn't write, with all due respect, you know what I'm saying. I wrote that thing. He empowered me. I took his grace, blah, blah, blah. But you get the point. He uses instruments, willing, humble instruments to pass on grace. And it pours into your cups. You're the next one in line, you see, in the circle. Trying to pump that grace around. I don't know who's beyond you, but this is how he scales out his grace. From one to the next, to the next, to the next. Please read it. On this topic of Thanksgiving, let's read a passage from this week's blog. Go to Ephesians 5.15. Ephesians 5.15. At this pace, I'm not even going to have to write any notes for Sunday morning. Too much preaching going on up in here. <laughs> I'm all jacked up on caffeine because I know I've got to stay up till 1. So, <laughs> Ephesians 5.15. This is in the blog, the end of it anyways. Look carefully then how you walk. Can you please... Don't point fingers. Don't say, oh, that's Paul talking to the Ephesians. Obviously, the you there was them. No, that's you. You got it? God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy God of the universe, the Holy Sovereign God of the universe, your Creator, your Savior, is talking directly to you. Y-O-U is you. Read it as you. You understand? Look carefully how then how you walk not as unwise but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Giving thanks always, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a pristine example of what it means to abide in God's grace economy, which really is a showcase for grace itself, or more specifically, for giving thanks. The very fruit of this attitude of gratitude is that we submit to one another. That we submit to one another. We're so grateful for the grace that we submit to one another, we commit to one another, that we're going to pour out that grace on the next person. That we're, not, that we're going to be vessels, we're going to be instruments of righteousness. That grace is going to come through us onto the next person, and so on and so forth. That's our commitment to each other, because we're family, Amen. Right? Isn't there nothing worse than a family member who's just like, you know, you don't get it. That, that person, you don't get it? You know, that one. The one that's like, I don't know. Uh, anyways, we're a family. We're supposed to support each other with grace, with encouragement, with love. That's the flow of things. The world, if you've noticed, and it's one of the reasons why churches are blowing up, the world is teaching our children to be islands all unto themselves. Right? So all you have is a bunch of little islands. And they're these little ecosystems that, that circle around their own egocentric selves. Everything's about them. Right? It consists of about a, a 10 by 10 square area. There's the couch, the TV, and the refrigerator. Oh, and don't forget the internet. Oh, no, the internet, they have smartphones now. You don't even need a computer anymore. The internet's on your phone. So it's like this 10 by 10 square area. And that's their ecosystem now. That's their economy. Their economy is me, myself, and I. Do you follow what I'm getting at? And that's all by design. 
That's what Satan wants. See, Satan wants a bunch of islands because islands don't grace each other out. Islands don't even love each other. It's sterile nowadays. You can't even get, an, you can't even get a full sentence out of people. Right? Love you. I literally just typed out the whole sentence. Capital I, space, L-O-V-E, space, Y-O-U, period. I love you. Love you. L-O-L-U-L-U-V, space, U. Love you. And I'm not picking, I get it. I've done, I've done that too. You know I'm getting that, right? I'm saying you can't even get like real love out of people anymore. Everything's shorthand. Everything's truncated. Everything's cut off. Everything's cut at the past. It's no longer love anymore. It's this island, you know, sending messages in a bottle to this island. Sending messages to a bottle to this island. And there's no relationships. That's all by design. Satan's laughing all the way to the bank. That's why kids don't want to come to church anymore. Why would I go to church? I just, I just dial up Pastor Ed on the internet. Right? I mean, you could technically have whole families if they all had a smartphone or a computer. One's over there, one's over there, one's over there. And they're all listening to the message separately in different rooms. Same guy, same message. When God says, hey, Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake wanting to assemble together. Don't forsake that thing. If you can get together, get together. So for the sake of encouragement. Nope, I've got my smartphone. I don't need to get together anymore. I can just listen to it online. I don't need to love other people. I'm my own island. You be your island, I'll be my island. You understand what I'm getting at? That's what, that's what this world is coming to. That's not submitting to one another. That's submitting to self. A 10 by 10 square area where you are the center of the universe and your own little world revolves around you. Right? And if you're really good, you, you, get, you get a... Uh, one of those monkeys that's trainable to go get your beer out of the fridge. Right? Or you, you can find YouTube videos of where guys have trained their dogs to go get beer out of the fridge. Dude. Seriously? Then we wonder, what? what? You know what I'm saying. Islands. Anyways, that's not submitting to one another. That's submitting to self. But when we do submit to one another, what does the Bible say? It says we're blessed. We're blessed. That's the beauty of God's economy. I describe Satan's economy with the little islands. God's economy is we're blessed when we give to others, when we lay down our lives for others. Sound familiar? So this ongoing gratitude and submission, you ready? Is the righteousness that we enjoy as children of God. It becomes us. This attitude of gratitude, and I'm not trying to be slick there, it's just the right sentence. This attitude of gratitude, right? It is the thing. It is righteousness, and it becomes us. You're just happy to be alive. There's several people in here right now, if not all of you, to be honest with you, that when I think of someone who's happy just to be alive, who every time I see their face makes me smile on the inside, even though I might be cranky and may not show them, which I apologize for, right? Every time I think of them, I'm like, you know what? That's beautiful. That's what I think is beautiful anyways. That's beautiful. When someone has that inner happiness, right? when they're grateful just to be a child of God. Do you understand? They just have that gratitude that just emanates out of them. And just their presence encourages me. Just being near them is encouraging. What if they never leave the 10 by 10 area? What if they really are just an island? How is it person like me ever going to be encouraged by a message in a bottle? I don't know. I kind of want to see your face once in a while. I kind of want to see your happiness. I want to see Christ in you. I want to see your peace. He said he would give you his peace. I want to see that in you because then I can be encouraged. Maybe I'm having a Debbie Downer day. 
Maybe I'm in a mood. I need to see you. You know what I'm saying? If you're an island, I don't get to see you. Others don't get to see you. <clears throat> so this, this kind of righteousness, this gra- attitude of gratitude, it becomes us. Righteousness becomes us in the sense that we cannot help but bear its holy fruit even. We are filled with it, as Paul wrote. Go to Philippians 1, verse 9. We are filled with this attitude. We are filled with this kind of righteousness. And as you can see, wait a minute. So we're filled with righteousness? Yeah. When you're filled with righteousness, guess what? You're blessed. Because when you're in the right, what, what, look at all that work we learned. Look at all that work we did on the good conscience. When you're righteous, means you're, quote, right, your conscience says, you're right. I'll leave you alone. Matter of fact, I'm going to encourage you. If you're unrighteous, what does your conscience do? It haunts you. And you are not blessed. This is, these are fundamentals. These are 101 things that we learned not that long ago when we talked about the good conscience. That's its job. It doesn't leave you alone if you're unrighteous, if you're living in sin. James 4.17, you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's accounted a sin to you. You know you're living unrighteously. The, your conscience is going to convict you of it and you're going to be haunted. I'm going to go on a limb and say that's not blessing. That's called misery. That's called not sleeping at night. That's called being haunted by your own convictions, your own good conscience. And the Spirit's like, yeah. That's not blessing. Philippians 1.9, And it is my prayer that, you, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Filled with the fruit of righteousness, being right, that's tantamount and saying being filled with the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, blah, 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 right? You want to be blessed by those things? Be right. Be filled with righteousness. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Be righteous. What's the Spirit been teaching us about righteousness? Attitude of gratitude. If you're an ungrateful, spoiled brat after he saves you, what do you think your conscience is going to say to you if you're truly saved? Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory, of, glory and praise of God. So on that topic of thanksgiving, I have to stop there, but suffice to say that Obviously, he's had a lot to say about Thanksgiving lately. What that means in your soul, I can only speculate, but I know that he never makes a mistake. That everyone hearing my voice, now or afterwards, needed to hear or needs to hear these messages on Thanksgiving. Maybe you've lost your, um, your gratitude towards him. I don't know. Maybe you're that island I talked about. I don't know. Maybe you're all the above. I don't know. But I know this. I want you to be blessed. So I'm happy to teach these things, even though I may not be the popular guy on the block right now. I may have said some things that are offensive about you and your family. I don't know. Maybe you're the one that's not teaching your kids. Maybe you're not the one that's reaching out to other people. Maybe you're that person. I don't know. Maybe you're the guy in the in the you're the cabin the guy in the cabin in the woods that keeps stubbing his toe. Right? But refuses to take a different path. Maybe you're that person. I don't know. But I do know for a fact that God doesn't make mistakes. And if you heard these messages and you've heard this emphasis on Thanksgiving, you needed to hear it. Something needs to be crunched into your soul. Something, somehow. Right? All right, we've got to head back to our primary course of study. I've got five minutes left. Can you believe it? This is so awesome. I'm not going to have to prepare anything for Sunday. 
I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to be so tired after this week anyways. Probably a blessing, right? Probably a blessing for you all. I'll be coming here and be like, what do you guys want to talk about? <laughs> anyways, enough about me. We've got to head back to our primary course of study where we've been focusing on family. Go to Proverbs 17, 6. Proverbs 17, verse 6. My big fear, if you want to call it that, just sharing, as your shepherd, is that um, you'll take these things wrongly. I don't know anyone who has a perfect family. Okay? No one. I've ever met, I don't think anybody will have a perfect family. So when we talk about family, we're talking about a divine standard. Right? We're talking about God's standard for marriage and family. I don't know anyone who has a perfect marriage. I don't know anybody that has a perfect family. So please, don't be condemned by these messages. I have to speak to this standard. Do you understand? And he's drawing you towards that standard. He's saying, this is what glorifies me to the max. This is my desire for you. I want to lift you up to this standard. You're never going to get there. But that doesn't change my desire. Just like you never, you, never, you never satisfy one of his commands perfectly, but yet aren't they commanded just the same? Like, boom, right? And you say, I'll never do that perfectly. He knows. But that's the standard. You can't lower the standard to accommodate the fact that you're, you, you know, you're not, you're just no good. <laughs> right? You can't lower the standard because you can't reach it. God's standard is always absolute and perfect. I teach to that standard. The Spirit works it out. How you get closer to that standard, that's between you and the Lord. We call that sanctification. You get it? That's my job. My job is to teach this thing. Too many people come down, try to meet people, right? Try to compromise Holy Scripture. Well, God loves you so much that He's going to lower His standards for you. <clears throat> Wrong. Get, out of the, get off the pulpit. You're not worthy. Get off the pulpit. My job is to teach the divine standard. How you get there or closer there to it, that's between you and the Lord. The worst thing I can do, like I always say, I'm a waiter, right? Is go, <laughs> once I get a door to the kitchen closed, put a little salt and pepper in there. I'm going to spice it up. I'm going to make it more tasty for you. Because I want you, to, I really want you to eat this meal, please. Nobody's looking. I should be thrown out. Immediately ejected. Whoop, gone. Deuteronomy 4.2 shall not add or subtract from the Word of God. Not my job. Not anyone's job. So please, the point I'm making, please don't be condemned because I teach hard lines on marriage and family. Okay? Proverbs 17, verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. So that was a launching pad, and we've been on it for a while now. Um, up here on the board is our recurring principle regarding divine institutions. God is the one who created the institutions of marriage and family. He also chose to make us in his own image, so it makes sense that since family is a big deal to God, then it's a big deal to us as well. That's been our recurring principle. On that note, uh, with what little time we have left, the spirits asked each one of us in our own way up here on the board. He's asked each one of us in our own way. If that's the divine standard, now if it's just you and your spouse, then that's your family. If, you got, if it's you and you have 28 kids, then that's your family. Right? It doesn't matter. The question remains, is my family godly? That's the question. In other words, if, 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 if the Bible teaches us what the divine standard looks like for godliness in a family, this is the standard. Nobody makes it, so stop being condemned. Nobody's perfect, okay? But is my family godly? In other words, am I at least, you know, <laughs> somewhere in the vicinity 
I'm not antagonistic. You know what I'm saying, right? Is my family godly? And what's the big litmus? The, the great litmus test is this word. One word up here on the board. Love. Not that kind of, you know, not that I'm a terrible parent and I, you know, enable my kids and I call it love. Not that kind of love. That's a whole nother subject. That's a whole nother tragedy waiting to happen. So let's just assume that when I put one word up here, I'm talking about godly love, okay? This is the litmus test. Does my family have godly love in it? Is that form, you could call it the highest order of grace, expression of great love, right? It's the greatest of all. Is that form of grace, does that flow in my family's economy? If I, if I look at my family now as a microcosm of God's economy, is there a godly economy in my, in my home, in my family? Does, does grace flow in my family? In the highest order of grace, we know, the great gift is love. Can I, can I give someone my love? Christ-like love. Right? When, when they wrong me, do I forgive them? That kind of a thing. Does that exist in my marriage? And does that exist in my family? Because that's what makes a godly family. Right? There's nothing where, I don't know, probably some of you, every... Every Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? Family, met, family members get together and there's always those eggshells. What's the problem? Someone hasn't forgiven someone else. Someone hasn't, you know, given up on the fact that they were wrong 20 years ago. And now when everybody gets together for Thanksgiving, there's tension. That's not love. That's not love. That's not godly love because it all stops at the, un, at the point of unforgiveness. There's a big wall there called unforgiveness. And grace comes right up to it and goes, Poop. no, I'm not going to give. I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to give my forgiveness. I'm holding on to that because I'm an arrogant jackass. I'm not going to give my forgiveness. Heck, that would be too graceful. That would be too gracious. Excuse me be too gracious. If I was to forgive, that wall comes down and all of a sudden grace starts flowing again. Right? I gave forgiveness, now love starts flowing again in my family. That's the great tragedy that I see anyways at family gatherings, large ones. People just can't seem to forgive each other. That's not that. That's the whole point. I mean, what's the, what happened on the cross? Some people like to say love hung on the cross. But what really happened? Forgiveness for sin. Do you understand? It was the start of it all. It's like the, it's like the priming of the pump. Jesus Christ said, Boo, I'm going to go to the cross because I love you. I'm going to find a way that you can be forgiven. And all of a sudden, the whole thing started, right? The whole thing's, mm. now we've got grace flowing. Now we've got love flowing. Read Philippians 2 when you go home tonight, right? Have this attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. Be humble, who humbled himself. He gave up being, he gave up being God in heaven to become like us so that he could show his love. Are you serious? And I can't go to Thanksgiving without forgiving somebody? Are you serious right now? God came out of heaven for forgiveness sake, for love? I can't go to a stinking Thanksgiving and be haunted by jackasses who can't forgive their cousin or their sister or their brother or their parents? Are you kidding me right now? And some of them suppose that they're believers, but yet they'll take his forgiveness? How does that work? What are you, bigger than God? God can reduce himself to your level, but you can't reduce yourself to what? Your, your family member's level? What is going on here? <laughs> Yours is a lateral move. <laughs> this is infinite. You think you ever get that? Uh, I'm out of time. That's a good cliffhanger for Sunday, though. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this evening to fellowship together, to break bread, 
We know that it's truth that sets us free, Father, so we're so grateful for you finding a way to get that truth to us, imparted to our souls, so that we too might live a righteous life. Uh, Not perfectly, Father, we know. We're not that arrogant. But a life that might bring glory to you, Father. We just pray that we do this for ourselves to bring glory to you so that we also might be blessed and we might bring these blessings to our families and beyond. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.